Well, I want to tell you about the very first Christmas that Gail and I spent together. We've been married 36 years, and we were dating, both living in Eugene, Oregon, in late 1979. Looked like we might get married, so I invite Gail to come to Madisonville, Texas, where I'm from, to meet my family. And the day after Christmas, she flies there. They lose her luggage, which be relevant later, and after we get there, the next day, my oldest of four sisters, I got four sisters, my oldest sister lived out in Bedias, Texas, even a smaller hamlet, and she had horses out there and land and invited us out to ride horses. Now, do you think that I should have um, uh, let her know that I was really uncomfortable around horses, or should I just play it cool since I'm from Texas and our area had lots of horses and cattle and and things like that. Well, I, I decided to play it a little bit cool. Didn't mention much. So we get there on the horses. Becky's got them all ready. And she mentions something in passing about my horse that I was going to ride being a little bit crazy. <laughs> I didn't think a lot about that. But we got on our horses, Gail, Becky, and me. And we began riding out on their land. And it was a nice, gentle, easy land. Uh, ride, and I could handle that, and everything was going smooth, and we went down this little gully, kind of turned around, kind of began heading back, and all of a sudden, my horse takes off. I mean, it just takes off in a full gallop or sprint or whatever horses do, um, you know, 90 to nothing. If I'd have known about it, it probably wouldn't have helped, but I didn't know a thing about it, and I'm barely hanging on, scared to death. I mean, there's nothing I can do to stop this horse. This horse is intent on racing ahead. I'm sure I'm yelling, whoa, and stop, and all kind of things. And uh, this, this horse is undeterred. He's racing. And then I look up and notice we're getting closer and closer to a barbed wire fence. And I'm wondering, does this horse see that barbed wire fence? And we're getting closer and closer, and, and I think, this is going to be ugly. This is going to hurt. And uh, at the last minute, we must have been just a few yards before this barbed wire fence, the horse makes a 90-degree turn. And somehow I stay on that horse, greatly relieved, and I survive and make it to the barn. Now, later when Gail makes it here, you know, what do you think? Do you think that she was... Uh, you know, worried, sick about me and how I was doing and praying for me. Some of you know Gail, don't you? Well, she thought it was so funny that she was laughing uncontrollably. She told me later, I could just see your head bouncing up and down. I knew you were scared to death. <laughs> and um, she, was, she thought this was so funny that she wet her pants all over the horse. And they had lost her luggage, so that was her only pants. So... Uh, that was, that was how we started our first Christmas together. <laughs> I hope you did better. Well, we're going to look together at the very first Christmas ever, the best Christmas ever, the one in Bethlehem. So if you'll stand with me, I'm going to read the passage from Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, the classic Christmas story. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Syria has been around a long time. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of, of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. Isn't it fascinating that the Christmas story in Luke's gospel, the only one that really records the details of his birth, that that story does not begin in Bethlehem where Jesus was born, or 90 miles to the north in Nazareth, where Jesus was raised, his parents were from, or even in Jerusalem, the great capital of the Jewish empire, but rather it begins way to the west in Rome, the vast capital of the Roman Empire. Now, why does God begin it there? Well, because it underscores the sovereign, unseen hand of God orchestrating events. See, this is what happens. 700 years before, God speaks through the prophet Micah that one day when I send the Messiah, he will be born in the little town of Bethlehem, just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. He'll be born in that town. But Jesus' parents are living in Nazareth, so they've got to get to Bethlehem before this baby's born. Now, God could have simply sent an angel, Gabriel, because He'd been sending angels to talk to Joseph, talk to Mary, talk to Zechariah, to talk to others. He could have sent an angel and say, get, to, get Mary to Bethlehem. But he doesn't. Because he's the sovereign, holy God orchestrating all events everywhere. He moves in the heart of the powerful Roman Empire, Emperor Caesar Augustus, has him call a census for the whole empire, and everybody starts moving around the empire. And Joseph and Mary, way over to the east, in the little town of Nazareth, sleepy little town, make their way to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's ancestral town. And there, he's going to be born. The baby's going to be born. God is the sovereign, unseen God. There's a New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, who gives us a little background about Augustus Caesar, the Caesar, the king at the time. Augustus was the adopted son of the famous Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar, of course, was assassinated. His adopted son was, was next in line, but he had to do, a, had to do some battling, and he, and he defeats Mark Antony in battle and becomes the, the unquestioned ruler of Rome. He changes Rome from a republic with senators and that sort of thing to an empire with himself as the emperor. He begins referring to his dead adopted father, Julius Caesar, as divine, and he begins to be called the Son of God, the King, the Savior, and the Lord. In fact, in parts of the empire, he is beginning to be worshipped as God. Now, with all of that background, think about the great contrast. Here is mighty Caesar Augustus. In the Roman Empire at that time, he was everything. And then there's this little Jewish baby, largely unknown, completely unknown in the empire, 
who is born. And today, it is Caesar Augustus that we never think about unless we read this passage about Jesus. And Jesus, well, uh, millions upon millions all over the world would give their life for him in a heartbeat. So, he is. He is the real Savior of the world, the real Son of God, the Lord, as we will sing a little bit later when we sing Silent Night. My favorite line from any Christian uh, carol would be, Jesus, Lord at His birth. And that's what Jesus was. He's Lord at His birth. You know, by the way, it's, it's so fascinating that people then would be so enamored with Caesar Augustus and his greatness, just like we tend to be enamored with celebrities of our day, whether or not they are great political figures around the world, business titans, or sports celebrities. We can be so enamored by them, but let's not be because they will come and go. But Jesus alone is great, and he will be worshiped. I was in Israel a couple of years ago, and I t- take a group from here with me when I go. And, and the first night we spent it right by the Sea of Galilee in Tiberias, place where Jesus would have been. And I, I, I can remember that first night we were sort of getting to know each other because everyone didn't know each other. And we came around the, the circle near the end to Vonda McCown, a woman in our church. And, and Vonda kind of told a little bit about her life. And then in the most sincere, unselfconscious way, she says this. She says, and he, speaking of Jesus, and he is all I've ever wanted. And it was so tender and heartfelt. And I hope that you can more and more say that, that Jesus is truly all I ever want. Well, Joseph and Mary, this young couple living in Nazareth, today a thriving Muslim city actually in the West Bank at that time, of course a small Jewish town, and, 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 and here's Mary getting more and more pregnant. She's not married yet. You can imagine, can't you? The gossip, the, the rumors, the stares, the, you know, people's assumptions that, you know, they've not been loyal to God here. And then God tells them that uh, they need to go to Bethlehem because everyone is going to get registered. Now, she's about eight months pregnant, at least, maybe a little bit more. It would be on the 90-mile trip in that day, on donkey or by foot, four to five days, probably five days. Very hilly terrain. Now, can you pregnant moms imagine that? Four or five months, uh, I mean, uh, four or five days journey when you're eight months pregnant Completely exhausted, they arrive at their town of Bethlehem, and they're checking there, and there's no room in the hotel, in the inn. Now, that could be just a non-essential detail, but, but the, the passage is so sparse. There's really only three details, and this is one of the three, about the birth itself. And so I doubt it's, it's a throwaway line. Probably it is a hint at the rejection to come, because Jesus came out of heaven for his people. And John 1, 11 says, he came for his own, and those who were his own did not receive him, referring mostly to the Jewish people, but that's true of, of Jews and Gentiles. But then it goes right on to say in verse 12 of John 1, but as many as, as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So if you want the right to become children of God, it is as simple as that by opening your heart, receiving the gift. Not unlike tomorrow morning, if you uh, are given a gift, you, you put your hands out and receive it. You say thank you. And that is what it means to believe in, to receive Jesus. Lord, I need a Savior. Thank you so much. Jesus, come in. 
it's that. So, no room in the inn. No doubt it was the inn owner who pointed them to a stable. Somebody did. Now, the stable at that time, at that place, was not a wooden barn like we would think of, but it was in a cave. If you go to Bethlehem today, in the West Bank, in the uh, more the Muslim side, there is a, a big field that they call the Shepherd's Field. And, and by it, nearby, there are four or five caves that would be great for a stable. I mean, you got to kind of bend down a little bit to go in, but there's a spacious place. It'd be kind of cozy in there. And, and that's where they kept their animals. They went into a stable where animals were, 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 were staying, keeping warm. And there they go. One writer imagines the scene in that stable the night Jesus was born. Now picture this, if you would. Joseph's, Joseph's eyes darted around the stable. Not a minute to lose. Quickly, a feeding trough would have to make do for a crib. Hay would serve as a mattress. Blankets, blankets, ah, his robe. That would do. A gripping contraction doubles Mary over and sends him racing for a bucket of water. A scream from Mary knifes through the calm of that silent night. Joseph returns, breathless water sloshing from the wooden bucket. Sweat pours from Mary's contorted face as Joseph, the most unlikely midwife in all Judea, rushes to her side. The involuntary contractions are not enough, and Mary has to push with all her strength, almost as if God were refusing to come into the world without her help. Joseph places a garment beneath her, and with a final push and a long sigh, her labor is over. The Messiah has arrived. Elongated head from the constricting journey through the birth canal, mucus in his ears and nostrils, wet and slippery from the amniotic fluid, the son of the Most High God, umbilically tied to a lowly Jewish girl. The baby chokes and coughs. Joseph instinctively turns him over and clears his throat. Then he cries. Mary reaches for the shivering baby. She lays him on her chest, and his helpless cries subside. His tiny head bobs around on the unfamiliar terrain. This will be the first thing that the infant king learns. Mary can feel his racing heartbeat as he gropes to nurse. Deity nursing from a young maiden's breast. Could anything be more puzzling or profound? The baby finishes and sighs. The divine word reduced to a few unintelligible sounds. Then for the first time, his eyes fixed on his mother's eyes. Deity straining to focus, the light of the world squinting. Where you would have expected angels, there were only flies. Where you would have expected heads of state, there were only donkeys, a few haltered cows, a nervous ball of sheep, a tethered camel, and a furtive scurry of curious-born mice. When you think about the God of the universe, the God of the, the infinite, eternal God becoming a little baby. It's just almost too much for we humans to process. But God did it because it was the only way to pay for our sins, for him to become a human. There's a little five-year-old girl who told the story, and someone wrote a, wrote a little section about it. She was five, sure of her facts, and recited them with slow solemnity, convinced every word was revelation. She said they were so poor they had only peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat. And they went a long way from home without getting lost. 
The lady rode a donkey, the man walked, and the baby was inside the lady. They had to stay in a stable with an ox and a donkey, but the three rich men found them because a star lighted the roof. Shepherds came, and you could pet the sheep but not feed them. <laughs> then the baby was born. And do you know who he was? Her quarter eyes inflated to silver dollars. The baby was God. And she jumps in the air, whirls around, dove into the sofa, and buries her head under the cushion, which indeed is the only fitting response to God becoming a baby. You know, I mentioned earlier there were really only three details about the actual birth itself after they get to Bethlehem. One being there's no room in the inn, so they had to go to the stable. The two others you see in 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the end. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths with uh, so few details. Why does, she, why does Luke include this one? Every baby at the time would be wrapped in these long strips of white linen cloth, so it was no big deal, no surprise. But for Jesus, it was a very significant thing because the gospel writers will call our attention at the other end of the gospel that when he dies, before he's buried, they wrap him in long strips of white linen, white linen cloth. And so his birth was prefiguring of his death. A reminder to every single reader, to all of us every Christmas, that the baby came so he could die. The whole reason he came, to die in our place. Now, the second detail was that they laid him in a manger. Now, that's a feeding trough. That's not a, a nice you know, sweet, uh, you know, thing in a Christmas setting. It was just where the animals ate food, smelly and dirty. Now, you moms, can you imagine putting your newborn baby in one of those? But they do. That's the only option that they had. Now, that's an odd place for a human being to be born, but, but it's a very fitting place to, to place a little lamb. And here's the backstory. All through the Old Testament, time after time after time, thousands upon thousands of times, lambs were sacrificed to be a temporary covering for human sin. Now, they couldn't really take care of human sin, not a mere uh, animal, but they were a temporary pointer to one day God Himself would step out of heaven to earth as the Lamb of God and die on a cross for our sins, and He could take care of our sins. Now, when Jesus first appears on the planet, to begin his ministry in John 1, John the Baptist, his chosen, ordained uh, messenger, uh, proclaims this in John 1, 29. He looks over, sees Jesus, and says, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this whole passage about the feeding trough and the stable, odd place for a human baby born, but not an odd place for the Lamb of God to be born. He came to pay for our sin. Both details Talk about Jesus was born to die for our sin. Some folks think of the nursery rhyme, Mary had a little lamb. The story of our Savior's birth is incredible. It's the most amazing thing ever. It's more almost incredible than anything you read in fiction. God becomes a baby 
baby born to a teenage Jewish mother in a cave outside Bethlehem, placed in a feeding trough, and the baby is God come to save us for our sins. You know, tomorrow morning, most of you will be given a gift. I hope you do. And it's fitting that we have this tradition of giving gifts at Christmas because Christmas is all about God's great gift, the amazing gift of life, grace, forgiveness in His Son. That's what Christmas is about. Dear friends, please do not reject the gift of God this Christmas. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you're not sure where you stand with Him, just breathe a prayer. Open your heart. Tomorrow morning, you'll probably say thank you. You can just say thank you, or you can just breathe a prayer, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, so many of us have done that. We're celebrating a Savior. We're celebrating the fact that we've got life, eternal forgiveness of sin forever. But many of us have done that in the past, and for some reason, maybe some reasons, our heart has grown cold, and we've become kind of distant from God. We've kind of uh, rejected Him in a sense and kind of held Him at bay. Tonight, I urge you to come home to Jesus because He is all that you really want down deep inside. He is the only one who can fill the longings of your soul. And it won't be with a little lip service occasionally. It will be if you surrender your whole life to Him. And so that's a prayer for us. Lord, I completely surrender my whole life to You. In fact, in closing now, we're going to put two prayers up on the screen. The first one on top is for those who've never trusted Christ or they don't know where they stand. If you thought that it just was a matter of being a little bit religious or trying hard, oh no. The whole reason that Jesus died on a cross was that He did it. And you simply trust Him, receive Him. And your prayer would be, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Those of us who have done this, I would encourage you either to reaffirm or perhaps for the first time, oh God, my life isn't working on my own. I completely surrender my life to you and mean it. Stand with me, please. And please pray with me. If you're here and the Spirit of God is tugging on your heart to become a Christian, just breathe that prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He'll save you. If you're already a believer, then either reaffirm or say from the depths of your heart, Jesus, I completely surrender all I am to you. And he will hear you. Lord, thank you so much for loving us like this to give us such a Savior. We bless you with all our hearts. In Christ's holy name, amen.